Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that looks at the political landscape and wonders why no one's ever realised that it should be hung as a portrait. Maybe that's why it doesn't make sense and look shit. This is episode 147, I'm Tiernan Nduyeb, and this week, as leadership hopeful and composite of a pomegranate, a melted sex toy, and every cast member of Grange Hill, Michael Gove, revealed that he took cocaine several times 20 years ago, I have two important questions. One... Can you imagine what he'd be like if he enjoyed the sound of his own voice even more than he already does? Ugh. And two, does this mean that unlike the former party leader, that his lines are indeed movable? Yes, Prime Minister and Forgotten Kitchen Implement Theresa May is no longer head of the Conservative Party, meaning they are officially without leadership. So, no real change from the last few years then. May is going to stay as PM until, as she says, her party successor gains the confidence of the House of Commons. So yes, it's likely that she'll still be in number 10 for quite some time, considering the current lineup would struggle to get the confidence of a squirrel, even if they were wearing a suit made of acorns. However, this does mean that the leadership race is officially on, and the contest has really heated up in the last few days, if you can actually heat something involving so many cold-blooded individuals. The lineup of contenders looks a lot like a Guess Who Melted Toby Jug edition, and is now down to 10. Boris, Gove, Hancock, Harper, Hunt, Javid, Ledson, McVeigh, Rob and Stewart, a.k.a. 10 Things I Hate About Blue. Stock photo of someone who's been injured using a photocopier, James Cleverly, dropped out last week on account of realising absolutely no one likes him, probably. SpongeBob shitpants, Kit Malthouse, also dropped out, saying there was an appetite for this contest to be over quickly, so it's surprising that he didn't try to offer some sort of crap compromise where it'd be done on time but by not having any contenders at all. Then, hours before the final ten were announced, man made entirely of circles, Sam Gima, pulled out saying he didn't have enough time to build support, which proves he wasn't right for the Conservative leadership anyway. As they all know, you don't build support, you pay for it. The final ten have started pitching their campaign pledges, most of which seem entirely designed to appeal to a very specific demographic, of the type of person who probably calls the police every time rubbish collectors come for their bins because they aren't wearing a suit and therefore must clearly be thieves. 
Case in point is current favourite and sleeping bag filled with dog food, Boris Johnson, whose main promises is to cut tax for people earning over £50,000 a year. Which is great, as that'll really help those hit by austerity, as they can all cheer themselves up watching the person down the road in the five-bed house light their bonfire with that extra £500 they've gained. Boris's aim is for the 40% tax rate to only start at £80,000, which is convenient for MPs as their new salary raise brings them to just under that. I mean, could Johnson have been any more blatant at trying to get backing from his colleagues? He may as well have promised free trips to Chessington for anyone who's ruined the lives of disabled people or a weekly grouse shooting session on Parliament Square for anyone who's fucked up Brexit. Speaking of the latter, Boris's other big selling point is promising that the UK will not have to pay the EU the £39 billion that covers lots of things that we've already used because nothing encourages the rest of the world to trade with us quite like using up all their stuff and then when they send us the bill, telling them to get fucked. I'm guessing Boris is aware that him becoming PM will definitely force Scotland to go independent and then any letters we get sent from the EU about the divorce bill addressed to the United Kingdom will just get returned to sender with no longer at this address written on it. Boris also suggested at a hustings last week that the best way to find a way out of the Brexit impasse would just be to remove the backstop from any withdrawal agreement because it appears that his time as Foreign Secretary was mostly spent being so ignorant of anything happening in Parliament that it would all seem entirely foreign to him. Boris has warned that his party faces extinction if they don't get Brexit done, which seems a really, really great reason to remain. Hey, extinction happens to all the worst dinosaurs. This is all very much in line with the theme of the leadership contest, though, which appears to be shitty, shitty policies that only people who take their private jet just to go to the supermarket would vote for. Ray Harryhausen creation Rory Stewart says that he'll create a national citizenship service for young people to help in the community. You know, in between their non-paid care work, low-paid zero-hours jobs and dissipating education hopes. But hey, I'm sure somewhere in amongst all that, they'll have time to sweep the front drive of a baby boomer's mansion entirely for free. Inspiration for Abigail in The Crucible, Esther McVeigh, says that there's nothing to fear from a no deal, which is about as reassuring as Freddy Krueger telling you that him doing your dental procedure will be entirely fine. Her main policy, if she became leader, seems to be just to suspend Parliament until October the 31st, so we just sort of fall out of the EU like we're suffering from cardiac arrest. Only person formed inside sausage casing, Dominic Raab, is pledging to redirect £500 million a year from the aid budget to instead use for endangered species and habitats, because I guess that's what the Conservatives will need if someone like him ends up in charge. While dazed ostrich Jeremy Hunt said that he wouldn't change the law, his personal view is that the legal time limit for abortions should be reduced from 24 weeks to just 12, which is a strange thing to say for a man who's living proof that it should be moved to 52 years. Hunt is now being backed by the worst of Jessica Lange's characters, Amber Rudd, because I guess it makes sense for one unaware politician to back another. Rudd said that Jeremy Hunt is a serious leader for serious times, which begs the question as to whether she's actually met him. It's like wheeling out a boneless clown as your new police commissioner, saying you need someone who's tough to be tough on crime before they flop out of the wheelbarrow and roll down the stairs while making fart noises. Hunt used the junior doctor's strike in his time as culture secretary to say that he's good at negotiations, so I really look forward to a potential prime minister who'll head to Brussels just to hide behind a tree for four hours until it all goes away. Robert Crumb's sketch David Lillington is backing Beano character Matt Hancock, presumably out of pity. But all of this policy chat has paled in the news cycle on account of Michael Gove's admittance that he took cocaine 20 years ago, despite writing articles criticising middle-class professionals who take drugs, and then being a justice secretary who oversaw drugs policies that disproportionately punish young black men. Though, to be fair, that is exactly the sort of thing that will appeal to Tory members. I mean, if Gove could now reveal that he once spoke real posh to be allowed across a border while condemning immigration, or he once lied about a leg injury to avoid a meeting while criticising supposed benefit cheats, they'd lap that up like a thirsty dog at a piss 
puddle. While his revelation has mainly been used to criticise him, taking drugs is pure Tory leadership, right? I mean, lots of idiots keep comparing Brexit to World War II and Churchill was off his tits for pretty much all of that. What's to say a go full of crack charging into the EU Commission and talking their tits off about all his big plans won't make them give us a deal just to get rid of him as fast as possible? This was the second blow, pun entirely intended, to Gove in the week after US President and extra in TV's Chernobyl, Donald Trump, said that he didn't know who Michael was, despite Gove exclusively interviewing him for The Times in 2017. To be fair to Trump, I think most people who've met Gove have had to repress the memory in order to avoid the night terrors that had followed. So, Rory Stewart's already confessed to his smoking opium in Iran. Boris has previously said that he'd taken cocaine when he was young, but that may have been icing sugar, which might have led to his lifetime of sugar-coating some awful bollocks. Raba said that he smoked weed in the past, though he'd never tell, as he always looks so stressed he's basically air-packed. And so did McVeigh, Hunt and Adria Ledsom, but we're not sure if that's as a mother. The saddest thing is, though, that despite all this, they'll all back strict drugs policies leading to harsh punishments for others, when what they should be saying is, look, things are so shit, we should all be on drugs right now, and I propose everyone gets them free on the NHS. God, it's such a shame that none of them took MDMA. Or maybe they did, and this is just the nationwide come down that we all deserve. Just to make sure everyone knows he's a massive spod, shaved mould Sajid Javid said that he's never taken drugs, but he liked a cigarette, punched bullies first and loves a cheeky Nando's. That translated means he once saw someone smoke, was a real bully and has been told by a 50-year-old Conservative advisor with no children what to say so that he's supposedly down with the kids. The BBC will host a Conservative Leadership Hustings programme next week on Tuesday the 18th of June, titled Our Next Prime Minister, which is shit, isn't it? They really should have gone for We're All Doomed, Same Shit, Different Twat, Cockfighting, Winner Ruins It All, No Matter Who Wins We All Lose, The Battle of Wastings, Summer Offensive or The Grand Irrational. What is clear is that whichever hugely unpopular delusional moron that gets chosen, they'll struggle to ruin things even more than the last unpopular delusional moron. As the Conservatives came third in the Peterborough by-election last week, their worst result in that constituency since 1886, a date that several of their backbenchers fondly remember. Instead, the seat was held by Labour on a majority of only 683 over the Brexit party, who came second despite absolutely no manifesto. Which basically shows that to the Cambridgeshire residents, the Conservatives' policies are worse than having absolutely no idea what someone would do for your area. I see your tough action on fly-tipping, but I'd prefer this person, who may be promising to personally take a shit on my doorstep every day and set fire to it, but I just don't know. So instead, Lisa Forbes, who has the sort of smile that says, I've just farted and blamed it on someone else, is now the elected MP, despite a row over her liking a Facebook post that had the title, Theresa May has a Zionist slave master's agenda, which isn't acceptable at all, unless it was actually a picture of May holding up a piece of paper that said exactly that on it, which happened to be the non-PC title of a 70s prog rock band. But I mean, of course, that's quite unlikely. Labour said that Forbes is not racist in any way, which is a bit like Esther McVeigh saying that there's nothing to fear from a no deal. Forbes has apologised, and Labour have said that she liked the posts without reading them, which is the only real way to survive Facebook. The Brexit Party conceded defeat before the results were announced because they just can't stop insisting that they leave before the deadline. The party were quoted as saying that Labour only won because of the Pakistani vote in the inner city wards, where, as they said, there are up to 14 of them in a house registered to vote. Great to see that the racists in the Brexit Party are the type of smarty pants who think leaving the EU might stop immigration from Asia. Brexit Party leader and amalgamation of all the Doctor Who villains and an armpit, Nigel Farage, evaded press for most of the evening, hiding in a toilet till it was all over. Lucky that no one tried to flush him away rather than out. 
Peterborough was a 61% leave voting area, so while it was close, the Brexit party not winning doesn't look good for Nigel's chances in Westminster. But despite this, he turned up the next day to number 10 Downing Street with a letter demanding the Brexit party, with no MPs, have a seat at the Brexit negotiations. Except they turned up on May's last day as Conservative leader during a time that negotiations aren't yet happening. I mean, talk about a hollow gesture, but even if for some weird reason the next leader did agree to that, Farage would probably only spend each meeting hiding in the toilet every time something didn't go his way. Although, if Jeremy Hunt ends up in charge, chances are he'll be there too. Speaking of new parties that give you just even more ways to be disappointed in politics, Change UK have already split as a party, which means that finally their barcode logo makes sense as it's obviously just all their candidates that have quit and had to have their names redacted. Six MPs, including Chukka, crosses his fingers behind his back while making every promise, Umunna, Heidi, I'll just pencil it in in case, Alan, Angela, flaky in every sense of the word Smith, Sarah, turns out I prescribed something else, Wollaston, Luciana, one day I'll find a non-racist party burger, and Gavin, I always leave a party before they can leave me, Shuka, and they've all gone. It seems that they were right when they announced politics is broken, as now so are they. The six have gone back to being independents, while David Lynch character Anna Subri is now leader, and the party is keeping the Change UK name, meaning that she can do all the greatest hits while on tour if they had any and were actually going anywhere at all. In other news, the Chancellor and human stalactite Philip Hammond has rejected the idea that millions of people in the UK are in poverty because, as he says, he doesn't see it. I bet he also won't eat sandwiches that aren't cut into triangles with the crust removed and wishes he could stay up past 8pm. A report by UN Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty in the UK compared poverty and welfare support to a Victorian workhouse. But millionaire Hammond said it was nonsense because it's not what he sees in this country as there's none of it in 11 Downing Street or the Treasury or those few times he's had to look under the sofa cushions for his phone or keys and his cleaners are too busy with their four other badly paid jobs to do it for him. It might just be a good idea to agree with Philip and persuade him that absolutely nothing exists if he can't see it, then let him blissfully walk around a busy London with a blindfold on for a few weeks, making sure he crosses as many roads as possible. Hammond also said that tackling the climate crisis and reducing carbon emissions to zero would cost £1 trillion and mean there was less money for schools and hospitals, because it turns out he cares about them when it means he can use it as an excuse to not care about something else. Downing Street have said Hammond's calculations are incorrect, but if he is right, then that's every day the Cuadilla fracking contract has been stopped because it keeps causing earthquakes, £94,000, losing court cases because you failed to tackle air pollution, £500,000, a new runway for Heathrow Airport which would increase pollution loads, £14 billion, reducing carbon emissions to zero, a necessary £1 trillion, Philip Hammond being taken out by a giant climate crisis fire tsunami because he can't see it so therefore it doesn't exist, priceless. Labour have announced that they're scrapping social mobility for social justice because there's no point in getting someone somewhere if when they get there, uh, it's illegal. No, sorry, that's not what it means at all. It's actually a very good idea to stop the idea of a meritocracy and just make things better for everyone, which makes sense for Labour to do when their entire cabinet isn't necessarily there because they've earned it, but more because they've just stuck around and suffered like everyone else. And the free TV licence for the over-75s is to be scrapped, with the only exception being if they receive pension credit. And that seems like a stupid move when all you're really saying to pensioners is, hey, save money and you won't have to watch the Conservative leadership debates either. Win-win. Greetings, Parpol Brods. How is there so much to say about so little happening? I mean, in many, many years' time, the wiki entry, or whatever it'll be then, for June 2019 will mostly be about Justin Bieber challenging Tom Cruise to a fight, and then an entry that just reads, some tedious shit happened in Britain while it rained. 
that'll be it. That'll be all people remember. Um, this is my general gripe at the moment. Now, how much news, time and complaining is based on such minor things when there's bigger important issues or in lieu of discussing those, you know, maybe we could just all have a rest. It could be because I have absolutely no time for anything anymore uh, in between working and looking after Mini Duyeb. But whenever I look at social media or large chunks of the news or general conversations with people I don't really want to talk to, my brain is mostly screaming, no one cares because the world is burning. On repeat, just on repeat all the time, normally with some sort of backbeat. It's like when people complain that freedom of speech is being oppressed, when in reality it's just that no one really wants to hear what they've got to say, because either it's hateful or incredibly boring. No one's stopping you saying it to a wall in a darkened room, just please don't tell me, as I'd much rather have various CBBS theme tunes on loop in my head while my eyes glaze over. Uh, if you're interested, it's mostly the Twirly Woos one, which I often pretend was sung by someone who thought they were going to be the next Dylan or James Taylor or something, but instead have their biggest audience at 6am, a large amount of whom can't even talk, and are more excited by squealing colourful blobs, and the other amount are um, deprived of coffee and very tired. Uh, or oh, it's uh, Ra Ra, the noisy little lion, which is narrated by Lorraine Kelly, uh, played by the actor Lorraine Kelly, a woman who I've unexpectedly stunned after seeing the clip of her giving all the shade to Esther McVeigh, which is just, that's oh, just beautiful. Uh, the notion that everyone would get along if it wasn't for politics and religion sometimes actually works in reverse. I mean, I've had really very little brain space for Lorraine Kelly, played by the actor Lorraine Kelly, but now I know she thinks that McVeigh is a complete tool as well. Um, she's obviously a champ, isn't she? Oh, it's bloody brilliant. Um, what I meant to say, sorry, uh, what I meant to say, of course, was uh, hello. Thanks for coming back to what is essentially just me running out of descriptive terms for Conservative leadership candidates. And thanks this week, um, especially to 20th attempt at a nickname, which is, God, it's such a solid iTunes nickname uh, well done on that work and to Jez writes for the very lovely iTunes reviews uh, much appreciated Jez also asked um, I should say as well as his nice review that I get a pro Brexit person on but preferably someone who and I quote aren't mental um, and I'd love to I really would be but that latter bit is the hard bit uh, is there anyone that any of you would suggest someone who'd be up for having a proper chat about it and just wouldn't keep shouting you've lost get over it or we just leave right now uh, like a sort of Will Young song let think if you've got anyone to suggest please let me know um, also I'm going to stop asking you to review the show or donate every week and just assume that you might all do it of your own accord as let's face it it's clearly the worst bit of the podcast every week isn't it apart from you know all the other bits you're all grown ups or at least children stepping up of pod grade so if you want to review the show I'll just look the other way and be pleasantly surprised when you do same with throwing any donation my way which you can do via the links in the pod blurb ah oh, I've just done it haven't I I've just bloody plugged reviewing and donating. Oh, damn the podcast. Well, look, I won't tell you to review the show or donate to the ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro or patreon.com forward slash parpolbro ever again. I promise. Ah, oh, balls. Oh, it's so hard. It's so hard. Uh, on the subject of reviewing, though, uh, shout out to the Greek listening massive, as this podcast this week is, for some reason, doing better in Greece in the iTunes charts way more than any other country. So I can only assume Brits are on holiday, or are you having a lovely bit of Schadenfreude over our EU situ? Um, whatever it is, uh, Parakalo. Uh, para- parakalo? I've probably said that all wrong, haven't I, now? And now you're going to unsubscribe because of my weird cultural misappropriation. Oh, it's like the Botswana charts all over again. Um... No real admin this week. Uh, I'm doing a new blog for workingdads.co.uk. If you go over there and uh, you've heard of working or you've heard of dads, uh, please check it out because it's mostly about all of those things. Um, And if you listen to this early, I am hosting uh, Hecklers in Oldershot on Thursday um, at the brilliant, brilliant West End Centre, which is always a lovely show. And I'm hosting um, a lovely comedy bill at the Trinity Theatre in Tunbridge Wells on Friday, which is also going to be bloody delightful. Um, I have no idea. I'll probably just be talking 
the same sort of shit as I mean you hear this every week do you need to hear me twice in one week probably not no one really deserves that I hope to see you there um, on this week's show I chat to Jake Hanrahan who runs the popular front site doing investigative journalism into irregular warfare um, he is a properly fascinating man and we had a really excellent chat I really enjoyed it um, plus there is some stuff about cars because I mean yes it's very important but also there's really there's nothing else this week there's nothing I mean it sort of feels apt that I have to talk about cars because UK politics has exhausted every other story I'm sorry but I'm also very much not sorry here have this Irregular warfare, despite its name, doesn't just mean the battles where sides don't try to get even, but instead, according to everyone's online pal Wikipedia, is a violent struggle between non-state and state actors for legitimacy and influence over the relevant populations. No, that doesn't mean those who act in shows on the BBC and those who do Netflix ones, but more situations that we've recently seen, such as the Gillette Jaune in France protesting against Macron and for economic justice, the Catalonian independence protests, or the Syrian civil war, to name but a few. It's easy to forget quite how many conflicts like that are happening in the world today, not least because it isn't shoved down your throat half as much as important news like which prospective Conservative candidates have taken which narcotic or exactly what about Brexit isn't at all happening right now. The non-reporting of several situations could, of course, be down to its assumed lack of relevance to British audiences, its overcomplicated nature, the fact that the UK government can't even remember it's going on, or very possibly because seeing the citizens of other countries rise up against oppression, injustice and fascism might just be too confusing for a country where in today's day and age we mostly prefer just to tweet about things sarcastically and hope that that'll somehow stop austerity. Then you have the problem of when it is reported on, whether or not the angle that's focused on is the real or most important one. I mean, chances are that the side that's getting all its weapons from the UK and whose leader has popped by to number 10 for a cream tea might not be the one fighting for the people after all. But who's to say when the only report we'll get on it is a jokey bit on BBC Breakfast about why a certain type of satsuma isn't in shops right now? And they'll call it a segment or so. That's what they'll do. They'll say, oh, it's a bit segment. Oh, sorry, this bit's a bit pithy. Oh, it'd be, it'd be fucking awful. Luckily, we live in a world where independent media has an outlet, and while on the one hand that can mean a series of websites whose news is composed of a random word generator and whatever they had dreams about the night before, it also means proper journalists getting to do crowdfunded on-the-ground investigations. Cue Jake Hanrahan, who's been covering conflicts all over the world by, well, heading to them and speaking to people there. Shock, I know. Uh, Jake has previously worked for a number of established outlets, but in recent years decided that he wanted to focus on the bits that most mainstream media ignores. And his YouTube series and podcast Popular Front does exactly that. From the PKK Youth Front to Ukrainian anarchists to the Venezuelan rebellion or a Japanese death cult, Jake has an incredible knack for getting real reports from those involved, even if it means, as in one example, that he's ended up in a Turkish prison cell for several weeks as a result. So this week I spoke to Jake all about the situations he's been in, why so many irregular wars aren't reported, what Turkish prison is like, and if the UK is about to see any sort of uprising ever, or if that's all just a bit too much effort, especially when it's raining outside. I had a lot of fun chatting with him, so I hope you enjoy... Here is Jake. Jake, the stuff you do uh, is amazing. I, some of the videos I'm watching where you're in the middle of a forest in Ukraine and my head's just going, why would you even go there? Um, which is amazing. Um, but I wanted to ask you that, that one of the things you say you do with Popular Front um, is you report on elements of war that the, the mainstream media doesn't or that the big media stations don't, um, which is obvious. And it's obvious that you, that is what you do. Um, but why don't they report on that? And what are the elements that they avoid? And for what reason? Is it political? Is it just ratings and human interest? What, why are these things being ignored elsewhere? Uh, it's a good question, but I've been asking it ever since I started doing this about seven years ago. Um, I, I think the issue is, yeah, it's kind of a ratings thing, but it's 
it's a bit of a, a myth, actually. It's kind of a, a fallacy that I think uh, executives have created. You know, you get some kind of, I don't know, let's say BBC is a good, good example. They have plenty of their uh, commissioning editors there earning about 100 grand a year, never interact with the public, and they suddenly decide what people do and don't want to see. So I'll go there and say, hey, we should be doing a documentary about this weird militia that's now suddenly, you know, yards away from US-supplied um, missiles that have been given to the troops that might end up in the hands of whatever. And they'll go, no one's interested in that. And it's like, well, how the fuck would you know what people are interested in? You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, sorry, I, I just, sorry, I have to swear or not. Uh, so yeah, you can swear all okay, you like. I should God, have said, sorry. yeah, no, this is a, a very swear heavy yeah, podcast. I, I, I'm a horrible, it, yeah. horrible gutter mouth scumbag. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah. So so yeah. So I think a lot of it comes down to uh, like commissioners just saying people don't want to see that, and I, I think that's not true. I think I, I've used this example before, but I think I think Netflix is a really good example. The success of Netflix on how actually people do want to know about weird, different shit, and they do want to see stuff from all over the place because you know, look, people will watch back to back six hours about something they never knew about on Netflix, you know, one after the other after the other. 10 years ago, executives were telling, you know, people are never going to do that. It has to be 30 minutes long. It has to be like this. So it's just not true. And then that has sadly trickled down, I think, into, you know, conflict journalism. Um, certainly there is a more like geopolitical aspect of it, you know, like a rock gets thrown in Palestine and everybody's eyes are on it. Yeah, you know, a, a whole city might get, or village might get massacred in Myanmar, and it's out of the news in a week. So, you know, there's definitely that that side to it. But yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I've been asking the same question: why? Why can I not get these more obscure things commissioned? Because one of the things um, that sort of, uh, you mentioned in your profile stuff that you report on irregular warfare, and that's something I had to I had to Google that. I'd never heard of that before um, until looking up uh, what you do. And, and, and can you explain to me and to the listeners exactly what that is? Yeah, I should probably change it. It sounds really wanky and elitist, but what I mean is irregular warfare as in so irregular militias, armies, uh, sorry, like not state armies. So, you know, it's not the guy that joins up with the army and lists 18 and he wants to get a house at the end of it in a career. It's the guy that goes, there's a war on my doorstep. Uh, I'm, I'm a butcher, but, you know, now I need to fight. And then within a week, he's a militant and he's fighting. So, you know, non-organized or non-state organized militias, that kind of thing, paramilitary forces, rebel groups that is irregular warfare you know rather than you know state associated rank and file army right and, and i guess in in some ways that's uh, also harder or, or can be harder for kind of big media to report on because it's just is spontaneous and it's kind of people just being passionate about where they are and it, it can just kind of kick off where and when so i mean that must be pretty tricky for you to find these people and, and know it's happening like how do you how do you do that yeah, I mean, it is trickier uh, in some ways, but in others it's not. So there, well, depending on what time you get into a group, like to film with a group like that and where, there's often a lot less bureaucracy than trying to film, for example, with, I don't know, the British Army, which, believe you me, is is just like a fucking ridiculous amount of red tape, and which is funny because they're always crying about no one's joining up. It's like, well, yeah, because all the stuff you make, you make yourself, and it's, you know, it looks terrible. Um, <laughs> but, you know, they don't let journalists into certain places. But um, certainly it is difficult. Um, but for me, I don't know, all of this is kind of like an obsession to me. You know, if I, if I wasn't doing this for my job, I'd be doing it anyway. And I know, like, probably people say that, but I, ju I just love this shit, man. I'm constantly reading, constantly communicating with people, um, just in that kind of world. 
So if I do go to someone, you know, like, hey, I want to make a film with you guys and I manage to get a contact, I can say, look at all this other stuff I've done with similar groups or at least groups that, are, you know, a little, like you might have an affinity with or recognize. And then that's, you know, over time, it's been easier to get in there. But certainly when I started out, I had nothing, man. I had no contacts. And I, to be honest, the first real proper kind of rebel or militant group I was filming with with some uh, Kurdish militants in uh in turkey and basically we just spent a week hanging out with them talking about normal stuff really like not really talking about politics and stuff and one night they they had a big march and they were like hey come with us and film and that was it you know and after that it kind of everything started to go from there and every other group that i went and filmed with look a lot of these groups are normal guys you know like yeah people forget that and women as well they forget that like okay they're militants they're fighting you don't have to agree or disagree with them but often they're normal people that probably would rather not be doing it you know so it's actually not that hard to talk to them and kind of recognize i think if you be honest with them they'll be honest with you um or at least to an extent and it works easier like that um yeah it's just always good to to keep your head on i think that's it's really interesting sex i thought one of the most fascinating things on your i think it's your most recent video popular front in uh, ukraine um with uh, the organized anarchists which uh, i thought was a paradox but it, it isn't um but um but no 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 so anarchy is not anarchy it's anarchy uh, order through anarchism but no i, I know what you right, mean sure. <laughs> i was surprised at how well organized they were as well yeah. <laughs> I, I, well that was it but but i, I think it's amazing in that for, uh, you know the first little bit of footage we see of them when you when you're in this middle of this this forest in the in the snow and they've got the balaclavas and the guns and it seems terrifying and then you have a chat with them they go oh well we saw all the bullshit that was happening and went fuck that and you go oh yeah you seem like really good guys <laughs> yeah yeah I'll be honest out of all the groups I've filmed with I got on with them on or not maybe not got on with them but I understood them on a personal level more than a lot of them because they're kind of disenfranchised young lads and women as well there's a there's a female fighter in there you see. Um, and yeah, that they're kind of, you know, I recognized their, I, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm an anarchist, but certainly I read a lot of anarchist literature just because it's, you know, it's interesting to me. And I kind of understood that, look, we're fucking sick of this, sick of that. Obviously being in uh, Eastern Ukraine, uh, sorry, being an Eastern European country, they're not big on communism. So, you know, for them, the radical option is fascism, which is rampant around there, or, you know, anarchism, which was this other path. And I just found them quite interesting. And yeah, like I said, a lot of them, um, were unlike Western European anarchists, a lot of the uh, Eastern European anarchists are actually genuinely like street kids and working class and normal kind of guys and girls that are like, right, we're fucking sick of this. So that is, I think it's quite easy to get on with someone like that. You just get like, yeah, okay, I understand like why you've done it. I don't understand why you think you want to fucking kill everybody or whatever, you know what I mean? But it is what it is. And it's, it, I think just because you disagree or, or are not following the same politics as one person, it doesn't mean you have to go, fuck you, I hate you. You know, it's like, no, you can, you can sit down and find something relative. And then you can, when you get that kind of click, then everything else unfolds a lot better, I think, you know? Definitely. I mean, it's even um, uh, sort of fascinating that I think Ukraine was most recently in the news because of their new president, who's a comedian, and that's all the news is about. But then when you start seeing on the ground level, like the people that you're talking to, you go, oh, right, I see why everyone rebelled against 
their government. <laughs> you know, it, it, it helps you kind of get another side of things. And you, you must be. Do, do you sort of feel you know? I, I saw that you've been uh, or you've been talking to you were. Uh, where there when the Gillette Jeans were protesting in Paris and you've been in various places where tension's kicking off. Do you feel like now is a time, uh, I don't know if ripe is the right word, but there, there's a lot of kind of dissatisfaction with with governance at the moment? I think, well, it depends where you are. Like in the Middle East, you know, I've done a lot of work in the Middle East and I think the people there are just so good at dealing with that because just so often they have to deal with this bullshit, you know what I mean, of like tyrant replaced by tyrant replaced by Western puppet replaced by jihadists, whatever, you know what I mean? So out there, I think they roll with it a little bit better. But in, in Western Europe, for example, I think this, you know, I hate this phrase populism, <coughs> excuse me, but I think the populism kind of thing is on the rise and people are definitely getting sick of the kind of elitist attitude. Now, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing, unlike a lot of people who think that anyone that voted Brexit is a Nazi or, you know, you know that kind of talk. I, I don't really get involved with that carry-on because I think there's a lot of layers to it, you know, like... You know, I have I have family members who are like far left socialist types who voted Brexit because it doesn't key up with any of their ideals, you know, yet therefore somehow they're now a fascist in the eyes of someone waving a flag of the EU, you know, so all of that carry on to me makes no sense. But um, sorry to answer your question. Yeah, I think there's a lot of unrest going on in Western Europe. And I think we're going to see a hell of a lot more, you know, uh, yellow vest, gilets on type stuff. Um Unfortunately, when it gets exported, you know, for example, what's going on in Paris, it's very much uh, they're a left wing, right wing, communist, anarchist, fascist. Everyone is is kind of fighting, not together, but for the same thing, like get Macron out. Um, unfortunately, when that get export, gets exported to England or, you know, similar places, it sadly ends up like, you know, the yellow vest movement in England is a fucking joke. It's loads of like EDL types who think that, you know, Jews are uh, reptilian you know them kind of people so it, it's it's becoming more fractured and i think there's like versions of versions of versions of things as they spread throughout europe are becoming a lot more tense you know is it i mean you know it's without sort of when stereotype places like, like the french have always been quite good at uprising against you know ever since sort of french revolution time you kind of you kind of see the genre go yeah that's very french of them to i kind of i i, I know that they're going to get passionate and fight about this We're, we've never quite been the same in the uk or not since like, i suppose the 80s there was the mine strike and there's been you know poll tax riots and stuff but it, it doesn't feel it, it always feels like when things are about to kick off here it, it's a bit scary because it's not our territory uh to do that do, do you get i mean do you get the feeling that we're heading there here you know is is that a, from, from all the kind of places that you've experienced kind of irregular warfare you've experienced people rising up do you do you look at the uk and sense that it's coming here or do you think we're not capable of such a thing um i mean it's that's a good question man and it's funny actually i was reading up uh just last week on the poll tax riots it's something my dad would always go on about you know you know the kind of legendary poll tax rights and i i, I just was listening to something and they mentioned it excuse me and um I thought, you know, I don't even know fucking anything about that. So, you know, other than chirping, chirping. So I, so I looked it up and I, and I was actually kind of sad. Uh, and I thought, I don't think there's any way that Britain could come together in a popular movement to, to fight something like that again, or at least not now. I think everybody is so fractured and so like snide and sniping each other that actually I think it's perfect for elitists to just fuck with us all the time because, you know, we're fighting each other. It's a lot easier for them to just say, oh, well, you know, do what we want. You know, you've got like Labour's fighting Labour and everyone that isn't what I think is a fascist or is a snowflake and all of that carry on. Like, 
is just such a mess right now. I think historically Brits, especially working class Brits, have kind of been quite, um, you know, had solidarity with each other. And I think I think it was quite a great thing to see, you know, saying like, no, we're not having this. We're not going to do that. Um, but unfortunately now it's it's just all been fractured. Um, certainly in terms of like regular warfare, I don't think we're going to see anything like that. I don't even think we'll see anything like the level of the Yellow Vest movement purely because I think people are so pacified by, you know, social media and all that shit. And there's also like the kind of faux radical element in the UK. I think it's, you know, oh, we're radical with this, with that. But then the second something gets broken, it's all, oh, no, how dare they? It's terrible. They're hooligans. You know, I think we're, we're unfortunately um, been completely controlled by that. And I'm not saying violence is good, but I, I also don't think that kind of never kicking up a fuss and just doing your nice little kind of twee placard and all oh, Trump blow up baby is enough you know and I certainly don't think change is ever going to come through that um, so no to answer your question I don't think we're headed towards that but I do think we might end up seeing more political violence in terms of like you know far right groups so yeah I think political violence will come in the form of lone wolf attacks and probably jihadists will strike again you know we have this disgustingly lax kind of thing where jihadists can flow back into Europe. So I think it's inev inevitable that that will happen. But certainly, I don't think there'll be a popular uprising. Um, I could be wrong, you know, Corbyn brigades or like Tory regiments might start running around, <laughs> but who fucking knows? Hope not. <laughs> I, don't, I love the idea of sort of uh, Corbyn regiments and, and, and Tory brigades. It sounds so twee. Uh, oh, <laughs> God, yeah. <laughs> um, like one person dies and it all ends, you know. Oh, Jesus. Um, but it, well, there's a couple of things I want to ask you about there, but the um, before we move away from the UK, the, the uh, Northern Ireland. I know you were uh, actually you were in Derry, weren't you? Uh, not that long ago um, during the March season. I mean, that's somewhere where we've seen uh, the new IRA kind of uh, rise up with, and there was the, the sad death of Larry McKee and stuff. I mean. What was your kind of feeling of? I mean, I've I've been to Northern Ireland quite a lot for for gigs and things. It's quite a different atmosphere when I'm there for comedy stuff. But so yeah, so I mean, it just like uh, that that must be an area that's uh, you know that feels like an area that's quite scary at the moment, especially depending on how Brexit goes and what implications that has with the border. Yeah, man. I mean, Northern Ireland has always been, uh, I think, a very interesting place, and I think Britain, you know, was obviously played i don't don't think it's partisan to say this has obviously played a very bad role there you know for example like going there and having like 800 years of war because it's just like no you're not having your country like you know i think i think there's always been this tension but certainly the people like the civilians the normal people of northern ireland there is not a thirst for war they don't want war you know it was very obvious when lira mckee was killed you know god rest her soul and the whole fucking community was like absolutely not we are not having a new ira we don't need a new ira in fact one of their graffitis was covered over which looks small from a british perspective but is actually a very big deal you know and it was covered up saying you know defeated army we don't want you here that kind of uh, message um but i, I think uh, uh, people don't realize I've got a very good friend, uh, Connell Kearney is a really good, uh, cameraman. He films filmed with me in Derry and, you know, he's from West Belfast and he lives, you know, in, in the areas where he lives in a Republican area. And certainly, you know, I remember he was saying to me, like, you can't fall asleep without hearing a helicopter. You know, he's kind of joking, but 
it's not unusual for them to have gunshots. You know, um, it's it's very normal for that to happen. Punishment attacks happen all the time where, you know, paramilitaries will shoot a drug dealer in the leg, ostensibly because we don't want drugs around here. But often it's, you know, you're not giving us the right amount of money. We want to let you do this. Um, so, so like, definitely the, the threat of violence is always there. And the idea that, like, the Brits or the, the English, the parliament, just didn't even consider, I feel, it looks like they didn't even consider Northern Ireland when Brexit kind of came about, is, it's not surprising, it's laughable, but it's, you know, it's not surprising. I, I think, especially now, England just is not interested, has no idea what's going on there. Uh, you know, the irony is the Republicans and the Loyalists are fighting each other whilst both getting fucked over by the governments in the same way. So, you know, it's it's a really sad situation. I really like Northern Ireland. I think it's I think the people there are very resilient. And it's just very sad that, like, you know, just they're just ignored so often. Um, in terms of the new IRA, to be honest, like I said, there isn't people don't want it. They really don't want it. And I'm sure people say, oh, it's easy for you to say is, you know, a Brit. But uh, trust me, they don't want it. The, the community don't want violence. You know, they, in my opinion, um, I think, you know, Northern, I think Ireland should be reunited, you know, but that, but that doesn't mean through violence. And, and that's how everybody feels. I personally think they're like, most people feel like that. The, the hardcore, um, so-called dissident element is actually very small, you know, a very small amount of people who unfortunately have quite a grasp on a community because, you know, as we know, violence is powerful. So, it's, look, it's not the troubles. I get a lot of American uh, listeners. You know, we did a podcast episode called uh, Brexit Bombs and the New IRA for Popular Front. And a lot of American uh, listeners contacted me afterwards. Like, oh, thanks for doing that. Because from their perspective, they were seeing this kind of romantic, oh, the Irish struggle is back again, you know, of the provos of the old IRA and what have you. And I was like, no, 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 definitely not. It's not that, you know. There is, you know, people are not getting massacred in the street as they were before. But certainly if you go to the bog side in Derry, the whole place is fucked. Like Sinn Féin, in my opinion, have let them down. Um, I think the Stormont government is an absolute joke. They've been out of session for months, maybe I think over a year now, just because they can't agree on things. So, you know, I think they're being let down by the British government and they're being let down by their own kind of autonomous government or whatever you want to call it. And obviously that is always going to leave uh, a void where paramilitaries are always going to jump back in. And there are a lot of weapons there still, like, believe me, there's a lot of weapons still. Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's terrible. Like you said, I just, I'm constantly amazed that, that everyone forgot them. Like, how, you know, yeah, they just, just absolutely sort of, it was about a year or so into negotiations. I went, oh, yeah, Northern Ireland's there. And you go, oh, fucking idiots. Um, but I the mean, other thing if, I wanted to, if, oh, go on. Sorry. So, no, I was, I was going to say, like, if, if my, my granddad's from Ireland, and if it wasn't for that, I probably wouldn't have known anything about the conflict previous to my work because I never remember learning anything in school about it. You know what I mean? Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. And we'll be back with Jake in a minute, but first... The UK's car industry used to be a thing of pride. I mean, from the early 1900s to now, Britain has produced some amazing vehicles from the uh, Austin Metro that looked like it was a doodle made by a child with a ruler uh, to the Lada, which uh, was sort of like driving around a heavy butter dish or um, the Robin Reliant, which felt like a warning to other cars in case they misbehaved. But seriously, it's been a pretty big industry for over 100 years, now employing 180,000 people directly with another 640,000 in supply, retail and servicing. Or, you know, in replacing my flat tyre after I managed to drive into the kerb a little bit on Friday. Thanks, green flag. I'm such an idiot, but look, I swear that kerb snuck up on me. How was I meant to know that bit of road would have a border? See, borders are awful. Anyway, it also brings in an absolute tonne of money with an £82 billion turnover per year, because that's what happens when Chris Grayling is in charge of the trains. It was announced last week that the Ford production factory in Bridgend is to close in 2020, meaning that 1,700 jobs will be lost and a huge chunk of the area's industry will be completely gone. So that's now the Honda plant in Swindon going, Nissan's Sunderland plant that won't be building their new SUV, Jaguar Land Rover are cutting 4,500 jobs, Toyota say that they could cut jobs too, and Michelin is closing its tyre factory in Dundee, which I bet is because it's been pissing about reviewing restaurants instead. There's a lot of jobs and a lot of industry all gone in a few years, and there's been a huge fall in car production this year alone. So, is it because suddenly we've all decided horses are in again? No, sorry horses, you're so 1800s. Is it that everyone remembers uh, that the planet exists and we need to save it, and also it's raining so we're just staying indoors? No, no, not that. Has the nation been struck with massamaxophobia? No, but I bet you're glad I use that word. It's really good, isn't it? A maxophobia, it's good. No, really good. Is it to do with Brexit? Well, and you'll be surprised by this, uh, yes. But also, more surprised, it's not just Brexit. Brexit is very much the nail in the tyre of a car that's already ploughed into a brick wall. Or a bit of a kerb, if you... This idiot. So, the Brexit bit is the reason for a production slowdown. Most car makers had planned factory shutdowns or had moved their summer maintenance shutdowns to March the 29th, in time for the OG Brexit day, because let's face it, no one had a fucking clue what was going on, so everyone just piss off home and hide there till it's done. Except then Brexit didn't do on that day, and everything got delayed, so production in April was slim to nard with nearly a 50% drop, which has made the economy contract, but not in a way that it might be leading to the birth of a new one, more in the way a spider's legs go when it dies. But those are, of course, factories that are still running for now, despite breaks. Whereas Ford's closure announcement last week is permanent, and they said that while a no-deal Brexit was catastrophic for them, it also wasn't the only reason. It's more to do with their plans to become a single global company, pulling all the Fords around the world together, well, except Harrison. Unfortunately, with Brexit, that meant Bridgend was competing against all the other Ford factories around the world, whereas previously it just been with European ones. Brexit took a very difficult situation and poked it right in the eye. 
Nissan said that Brexit has sped up a decision about not building their X-Trail SUV at their Sunderland plant and instead moving it to Japan, but that it's mostly also to do with investment and issues with emissions regulations and sales forecasts, though the UK missing out on the big EU trade deal with Japan possibly wouldn't have helped that much either. But there are lots of other reasons too, including that a lot of people aren't buying diesel cars anymore on account of them farting out planet murder, and the electrification of cars meaning production needs to change, and sadly it usually goes where it's cheapest. And while that's why Honda is shutting their Swindon factory down in 2021, I guess chances are if we have a no-deal Brexit before then, they may well keep it there, as suddenly they'd all be able to pay all their staff in Soylent Green and nothing else. So a move to greener, cleaner energy is very much a good thing, but the UK right now doesn't have the infrastructure or want to provide support for people losing jobs in the car industry, which is very much a bad thing. Somewhere like Bridgend will struggle to absorb nearly 2,000 job losses unless investment is made. And there are some potentials for the factory to develop vehicle batteries instead, and a new Aston Martin factory is opening just a 20-minute drive away, though the head of manufacturing there said they've had over 100 people apply for every single job going. Unite are also fighting to support the workers as much as possible, but the fact is, unless money is put into development, a lot of British car manufacturing may be parked for the foreseeable future. Yes, I'm ending it on that. Yeah, it's, ter- it's terrible joke, isn't it? I'm ending it on that because all the news this week has been Conservative leadership candidates who probably aren't even aware that Wales exists. So that's what you get. And now, back to Jake. The other thing I wanted to ask you is something you mentioned earlier about uh, you were talking about jihadis. There's still the, the issue of that maybe coming to the UK, but but you you still talk quite a lot, or, or you still come across elements of ISIS. And we had big headlines not that long ago about how it's over and they're all done, and that's obviously not that. Is that is that another case where the news has kind of gone? Well, this sounds like a great headline, but I'm not going to really look into it any further. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I think actually the news did a fair good job. I think the problem was people reading a headline or a tweet and they're not reading the article. <laughs> like a lot of people were saying ISIS is over as a ground force that hold territory, but they're not over. For example, the Asayish, the uh, the Kurdish police forces in uh, Raqqa, which was previously the ISIS, you know, HQ, the capital um, of their so-called caliphate. Uh, what was it, last week, uh, I think five of them got killed and five civilians got killed in a sleeper cell suicide car bomb attack, I think it was. So, you know, these people are still there. They just don't control ground anymore. I think there are going to be areas where you will actually see an uprising of ISIS sporadically popping up here, there and everywhere, all over Syria for a long time. Um, But, you know, you can't really kill that idea that kind of entrenched militant jihadism has obviously never gone away. And ISIS being as extreme as it is, is not just going to vanish because they don't hold territory in Syria anymore. You know, they're everywhere, man. They've got they've got a fucking they've got a cell now in the Congo, you know, Islamic State Central Africa, it's called. And they got a cell in West Africa and they, you know, loads of them took part in the fighting in Marawi, in the Philippines. It's everywhere, man. And we're going to see attacks in Europe without a doubt in the next two years, I think. Um, certainly Baghdadi, the leader, came out and said, you know, kind of now is your time. You know, now you guys need to cause havoc again in Europe. Hopefully the security services can, you know, handle that. But uh, I don't know, man. It's, it's hard. How do you stop it? How do you stop one lad going, right, today's the day, you know, jump out the van, stab, stab, bomb, whatever. It's, it's very fucking dangerous, you know. And I don't want to sound like an alarmist, but... I don't know. I've been out there, man. I've seen the kind of damage they can do to to a society just, you know, when they're all together. And I don't think that's just going to vanish so soon because they don't have borders anymore. Sure, sure. I mean, part of me hopes they'll look at Britain and go, oh, it's fucked enough already. We'll just <laughs> we'll, we'll leave them to do it themselves. <laughs> you would wish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You would wish. But uh, no. Nah. I mean, if anything, they look at that as a good thing. They, they love unrest. You know, it's perfect for them to kind of weed their way in. 
Sure, sure. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Um, it's yeah, quite sort of fertile ground for that at the moment. I, I'm sure. Um, and I've got. I, I realize it's sort of a bit bitty, and I, I sort of feel like listeners. What what we'll say is after this chat, you've got to go and watch uh, Popular Front on YouTube. You've got to check out all Jake's stuff. But you, you've been everywhere, and one of the things that one of my listeners suggests I ask you, and you've already said pre-recording that we can't talk about this too much. But you were arrested in Turkey. What can you tell us about that? Because that sounds really terrifying. <laughs> and uh, yeah, um, what, what were you reporting I mean, on? Can you tell us what you're reporting on at the time? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, the only reason I said I can't really speak about it too much is just because it's an ongoing case, you know, and I don't want to say anything, whatever. But so so what happened was uh, 2015, I, I'd been filming previously in, in southeast Turkey and, and once in Istanbul as well, actually, with a militant youth group of uh, Kurdish militants. Um, you know, they're attached to the PKK, a very old, um, long-running battle has been going on with Turkey and the PKK because they want their own autonomous region in southeast Turkey, which historically, excuse me, which historically, for them at least, is northern Kurdistan, right? So the PKK have been waging this 40-year um, insurgency, and it got to a point where the youth, kind of the next generation, were, you know, they were rising up because there'd been this ceasefire, and things were actually doing all right in comparison to how it had been decades before. But the youth being the youth, you know, angry teenagers, got nothing going on for them, you know, very bad um, rates of unemployment. I think it was three times worse in the southeast, which, you know, is Kurdistan for them compared to the rest of Turkey. And, that, you know, when there's been decades of war on your doorstep and kind of constant, constant indoctrination and talk of the kind of movement, um, you know, like I said, they, they started rising up themselves. So what they decided was like, OK, this is now Kurdistan. This isn't Turkey anymore. We're setting up barricades and roadblocks and whatever. And what they basically did over the space of about a year or two was create what they called autonomous zones. So they were, they were literally, you know, the police had been chased out of certain areas even. And they were roaming around with, you know, assault rifles, uh, rocket-propelled grenades, building bombs. And these were like teenagers running about in a pair of Nikes and jeans with a balaclava on and a fucking combat vest on saying, hey, we run this area now. And, and they did have popular support as well. I was there. Trust me, I was there a lot, more than any other reporter I was there. And a lot of people loved them for what they were doing. They were seeing it as like, oh, these are our youth. They're rising up. They're protecting us, whatever. For right or wrong, due to very many, many, many decades of abuses and whole towns being massacred in the war from, you know, from the Turks, Turkish military doing whatever. And then the Kurds you know, doing their, you know, they're considered terrorist organization and all of this. So that was a very big deal. So I was reporting on it because I, I don't know, man, I, the first time I met them I was like, these lads are going to start the next war here. It's going to be, I just knew it. You know, when you just, you can feel it. I was like, these kids, uh, they're, they're like the, the next, the 21st century version of the PKK, you know, they're the kind of, they're militants with Instagram, you know what I'm saying? They were like the next gen, you know, and it's very interesting to see. And that, that really, grab my attention so anyway as, as i knew it was going to happen after meeting with them once and seeing them kind of had this tentative kind of piece where they would fire at the police the police would fire at them and then everything would go back to normal now uh, in, in september of 2015 they'd actually cut off and said like right this is our zone now and we're actively fighting the turkish military so i went there um, and was filming because you know i wanted to know what the fuck is going on this is very interesting incredibly underreported conflict you're talking about teenage militants rising up to fight nato's second largest army war crimes going completely ignored by you know the un and what have you whole families and people burnt to death you know civilians shot and killed uh, children killed very big situation so i was like right i want to film this 
so we were there and I'd had good contacts with them and, you know, and it's filming and it was, it was like, um, it was a bad situation, but that the youth were, were really shouldn't have done what they did, you know, by setting up static boundaries and saying, this is us. Obviously the military are going to have to go in and kill them all. You know, it, it's kind of one of them ones where it was just a very bad thing. The, the heads of the PKK, like the adults should have said hey, back down, everybody stepped down and it was just a bloodbath basically. So anyway, so I'm, I'm filming, you know, like I, it wasn't particularly the bloodbath when I was there. I should put that straight. I don't want to give any kind of false perception of what was happening when I was there. It was pretty heated when I, I was there like you know one night we were getting fired at from god knows where but it wasn't a bloodbath at that time um but what they started doing was arresting a lot of people and obviously i got picked up with two of my colleagues we were arrested and you know the charges with terrorism and i was like what the fuck like terrorism like you serious now it's the number one jail of journalists but back then it wasn't it wasn't that the free press was doing okay so it was a bit of a shock you know um maybe naively i don't know but i don't think so because they were allowing a lot of free press at that time um, so sorry to talk your ear off, but I just want to kind of get it in a nutshell. Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> but, no, no, it's fascinating. Uh, there's a lot to it. It's, yeah, there's a lot to it. And were you, you so wearing anyway, your big press t-shirt like you, like you're doing all your, is that one of the reasons that started you, you know, caused you to start doing that? Because yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, when I had, you know, we were obviously press. We had a press patch, like, you know, we're, we're there filming. I've never touched a weapon in my life. I am not on the side of the militants. I am not trying to, like, help them in any way. I'm just filming what's going on, you know. Certainly, I'm not a psychopath, and I understand why, you know, when I interview a teenage girl with a bullet lodged in her neck that, you know, I get why everybody's angry. But also, it's like the mistakes that of the militants themselves were, were fucking horrendous. You know, very big mistakes were made. Anyway, um whatever they arrested us and said you're pro this you're pro that you're trying to you know you're trying to do whatever and they accused us of being terrorists and like i said the case is still ongoing there is no evidence that we're terrorists of course you know we're we're objective journalists we're not trying to attack the state we weren't trying to do any damage to turkey you know i think it's a beautiful country but you know it is what it is when you film in these kind of hostile environments you have to take what happens you know and, and unfortunately we got sent to prison and we were in like four different fucking jails and you know, i was just sitting there like what is going on like why are we here um why are we in prison like why are we being called terrorists it was a weird a weird experience man i was like 25 at the time so i mean it was certainly scary but i was in with like my two best friends you know like my friend phil and rasul so it was certainly uh you know it wasn't as bad as it sounds i i definitely would say we weren't treated as badly as you might expect sure so turkish prisons are not too way. not too bad like don't go but uh yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah your trip advisor review isn't going to be great sure but <laughs> yeah, for me anyway that, and it's very easy for me to say that because i'm a white kid with a red passport you know for example we were out in 11 days and our friend spent over 100 days in there so it is what it is you know he was he was a you know kurdish kid so it's uh it's it's yeah it, it look it was fucked up put it that way it was a very bad night i wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy but I, again, it's like I chose to go there. I knew the risks. I didn't think that would happen, but you know, you know, so be it. Poor me, you know. Like there are many, many, many citizens inside that are not going to get out as easy as me. Certainly, have a w much worse time inside there as well. So I, I don't want to be like, oh, poor me, you know. But it happened, um, and <laughs> I don't want it to happen again. <laughs> Definitely not. Put it that way. Sure, I mean, but, but even so, I mean, imprisoning, you know, press for reporting, and obviously now Turkey is, as you said, yeah, imprisoned so, a lot should, more. Just, sorry, sorry, you. Journalist. I should say the yeah, sorry, I should really say the point of arresting us, I you know, I believe was this kind of don't let them film this because you know, 
censorship, I guess, to the extreme. So, yeah, sorry, Karen. Yeah, yeah, but I was going to say that sort of thing in general, you know, and again, you know, I know there are parts of the world that are far more terrifying than where we are right now, but, you know, Trump has got his big anti-media thing. Uh, you know, there's lots of now talk against the media or fake news and stuff in the UK. There's, that that must be quite sort of terrifying from the point of view of a journalist that really goes in and gets the real story from places. Yeah, well, last year, um, the, one of the indexes, it showed that I think it was the worst year on record for pris- uh, journalists being imprisoned all over the world. Um, and I think we've definitely hit this weird kind of kind of nothing means anything point, which is quite worrying culturally, where I think before it was like you can't jail journalists for doing their job. Now it's like, so fucking what if you jail journalists for job? You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's worrying. That is that attitude. I do think that the press bring on, I think... Um, I don't know. I always say this. I love journalism, but I actually quite hate the industry. I think the press bring on a lot of problems on us themselves. Like there is this kind of elitist, oh, how dare you vibe, which we need to forget because it's like not everybody gives a shit about what we care about and really should realize that you know this there's and there's a lot of to be honest there is a lot of very bad reporting i think this kind of the neoliberal media machine is actually quite fucking dangerous as i you know not as bad as the kind of far-right bullshit machine as well but I, i definitely don't think we should just ignore it you know there is a thing of well this person likes this so therefore bad and it's like, okay, well, maybe life's maybe life's a little bit more nuanced than that. You know, I think it might be. And I think the job as ju- of journalists is to look at it a bit more nuanced, not to just go this bad, that bad, and certainly not to act as kind of uh, propagandists for like, you know, uh, the, the democratic or conservative person that they like. I think that is definitely sneaking in and is a big problem. Um, uh, and, and as well, I think a lot of the problem with funding is a lot of funding is being cut and a lot of people are falling apart. We've seen a lot of journalists losing their jobs, which is unfortunate. Um, and it's not the journalist's fault. It's the media. It's the big media machine fault. I mean, I sound like some fucking edgy teenage leftist <laughs> saying that, but it is real, you know, like it is real, man. Like, you know, I've been into places like The Guardian that are asking everyone on the paper, like, please give us more money. And then they'll go and pay someone like a thousand pounds to write some bullshit about how hummus is appropriation or some nonsense, you know. <laughs> and I'm sorry, I don't give a fuck what you're into. That is never important. That bullshit is never important, you know. In the grand scheme of things, that whole thing is it's going to be dying down in a few years and you've wasted a lot of money on it also you should see some of their offices it's fucking disgusting i'll be like if you want to save money i will save you money take that desk take that desk get rid of this fancy fucking canteen then start asking for money you know what i'm saying so um i don't know yeah but but definitely i think i think the media is in a very in a horrendous place right now um I, maybe i'm naive you know i've only been doing this six seven years um but I do think in the last two years, I've seen it go into a really uh, bad place. Uh, I do think independent media is going to get a kind of resurgence, hopefully, off of the back of it. Proper independent media, not like a big company that is, you know, doesn't have government backing. I'm talking about like, you know, weirdos like me and other people that are trying to start their own thing. I think that's cool. I mean, I would say that, but you know what I mean? I hope that's the resurgence. <laughs> but yeah, man, I did, so to answer your question, it's definitely scary. I mean, I'm always having a dig at the media just because I want it to get better. And I think that it can be a lot better. Um, I, I'm certainly a lot of people don't like me because of this stance I have, but oh well. But um, at the same time, like what you said is, is scary. Like when Trump is out there saying like journalists are the enemy of the people, like 
you're meant to be the leader of the so-called free world. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? What he means is anyone that doesn't like what I like or agree with that I agree with is my enemy, which is, frankly, like a fascist ideology. Now, I'm not, I'm not one of these guys like, oh, America's a fascist state. I'm just saying that kind of terminology certainly looks like that. And I can understand why overzealous kind of uh, liberal reporters will jump on that. And then it creates this back and forth, you know, this side, that side. And that, that's just a very dangerous situation, I think. And, you know, the, the shit he comes out with, it, it, I, it's just unbelievable to me. You know, as, as a kid, I was growing up looking at America and thinking like it's this way. And then to realize like, oh, no, it's a different way is, uh, I don't know, it's, it's just weird. I, I just I just can't really understand this weird paradox where the president of the United States continuously says that journalists are the enemy of the people like it, I don't know who can get their head around that. I can't. It's it's, it's really depressing. As a kid, for me, yeah, it was land of like Disneyland, Star Wars, things like that. And then I got older and went, yeah. oh, it's it's like the Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know they're drone striking kids every week, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, like, yeah, it, yeah your perceptions really do change. Um, right. Well, thanks so much for for speaking with me. My last question for you then is uh, obviously, uh, listeners, got to check out all your stuff, which I'll plug, um, and the links will be on the podcast blurb. But uh, who do you go to? Who who do you go to? For information um where else should listeners be looking for you know what who are your chosen journalists or sites or independent news sites um once once they've watched all of your videos uh just me only only what i say is correct (laughs) (laughs) no um to be honest uh i i still think there's a lot of really good media out there the new york times i think do a really good job of foreign reporting they've had some fucking iffy pieces recently but they they do a really good job bellingcat i think you know i actually don't agree with a lot of bellingcat's kind of political stances but it does it's one of them places that doesn't matter because they put the information in front of you it's like you can't really say, well, that's not true without just talking shit because it's like they say, well, it is true because this, 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 this. Debunk it if you want, you know. So I think bellingcat.com is a very good resource. Um, yeah, like New York Times foreign reporting. Uh, but to be honest, uh, mostly I'll like read more books than anything, you know what I mean? Like um, I'm just a lot of uh, like Sebastian Younger, excellent journalist, Evan Wright, um, Ben Anderson. There's some really good reporters out there, you know, still doing stuff. Um but yeah, to be honest, I wouldn't say there's one specific place where it's like, oh, they're really good. This is really good. It's just like, I think you have to take the stories on their merit. Obviously, you're not going to read Breitbart or some bullshit or like the Daily Mail. That, to me, that's no, it's just like ignore that. There's no point. But they, even BuzzFeed, which I think is appalling, will have some really good news work, you know. So I think it's just one of them ones where it's like, I guess I just look out for uh, what I consider the good pieces. But again, it, it is a problem because I understand that people haven't really got the time to do that. You can't just say, oh, yeah, we'll spend this many hours doing combing through this much bullshit to get to this. And it's, you can't really do that, man. So I don't know. Overall, I think the media, you know, as much as as, as much as I'm going on with my kind of hubris, I think the mainstream, so-called mainstream media overall, you know, does a fair job. You know, I, I don't think it's good or even, you know, not bad, but it's fair, I think, most of the time. But I think one of the ones is to just kind of have this head on of being like, it's you're not a nut job to question things. It is actually OK to go maybe the BBC is full of shit there. Whereas unfortunately now you have one side saying, well, how can you question them? Or you have one side saying, question them all the time, you know? So it's just a mess. But I, I guess, you know, just just keep an open mind and just, just kind of uh, do your own research, I would say as well. But just stay away from like RT and, and Daily Mail and shit. That's what I would say. <laughs> 
Thanks to Jake for being up for a chat. Uh, you can find Jake on Twitter at Jake underscore Hanrahan or his website, jakehanrahan.com. And his web doc series and podcast, Popular Front, uh, that I just can't recommend enough, um, is at popularfront.co. And on there, you'll find links to the YouTube videos and podcast episodes as well. Huge thank you to Stefan as well for recommending that I drop Jake a line. And if you have anyone that you suggest I interview for this show or subjects that I haven't covered but I should, please let me know. Um, I'm also aware that some of you have dropped me a line with suggestions and they've not made it onto the show, but that is entirely their fault for never ever replying to my emails or being elusive enough to have no easy way to contact them or more likely specifically avoiding me because they just get so nervous and excited chatting to me, you know, woo, it's turning, uh, that it might result in some sort of bodily accident. They just, they fear that. They never want to go there because oh, it's too much, too much overload. Okay, it's not that. It's never that. It's just that it's sometimes easier to think that uh, rather than that my pitiful pleading email is sitting in a spam folder unloved. Oh, it's so hard. Anyway, if you do have suggestions for me, where, oh, where can you send them? Well, that is right, uh, to at Bro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, the contact page on partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you could use steganography to conceal your message inside a microdot on an image that you send to me via the internet or on a well-placed billboard near my residence, and many will walk past it not knowing that within Taylor Swift's eyebrow or a random man from an internet clothing company's ear hole that it contains a 10,000-word essay and contact details of all the guests I should ever speak to for this show ever. But I'll also walk past it as I'm so tired and I really hate those adverts, so it's a terrible idea. As always, it's probably just best to email, isn't it? And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Thank you for allocating time uh, for listening to this amongst your busy life schedule of lion cub rearing, tree engineering, teaching courses in dishwasher etiquette or whatever it is that you do. I mean, those are some of the things that I imagine that you do. Don't write in and ruin that. What you can do instead, though, is sponsor the show, review it, write in about thoughts relating to the podcast or otherwise, and blast noise about your enjoyment of the show everywhere you can so that other people can listen to it too, or more likely just ignore you, because let's face it, most social media is now like an endless, noisy, pointless, misery-churning void, and shouting links at people in real life makes them really sad. Thanks to Acast who hosts this show, as without them it'd just sit on my laptop and you'd all have to listen to someone doing something joyful and whimsical instead, which sounds awful. No one cares because the world is burning! Sorry, sorry, sorry. Thanks to my brother the Last Skeptic for all the tunery, and to Cat Day for typing up the linear liner notes for partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk every single week. This will be back next week when Conservative leadership candidate Boris Johnson announces that he can't get through the day without bumping Ket off an illegally netted fresh dolphin carcass. Matt Hancock says that he starts every day with a speedball and Mark Harper shocks everyone and causes mass upset by speaking out loud in a public area and they suddenly notice that he's real. Bye! This week's show was sponsored by the Change UK calendar. Got an important date you've promised you'll keep? Add it to your Change UK calendar and it'll cancel it before you get there. With new erasing technology, the Change UK calendar will barely resemble what you bought six months ago with only half the pages and absolutely none of the content. The independent group Anna Subri and the Subreme's calendar for when everything else is broken and so is your life. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.